everyone. I'm Kyle Unruh, and this is another round of thoughts. I have a really exciting life update to share with you guys to kick off this episode. And you know it's exciting because it's coming even before I tell you what I'm drinking. So make sure you're sitting down and in a comfortable place for this because it's super exciting. I am now a dog owner, which is super, super fresh, new, exciting, scary, Yeah, pretty much every emotion you can think of rolled into one. But I'm really, really thankful for the opportunity to adopt a dog. His name is Eugene. He is from San Antonio from a shelter. Well, I guess maybe not so much a shelter, more like a rescue network called Snipsa. And they're a super, super great organization. The way that they do it is they have all their animals in foster homes. So they don't keep any on site. It's not like a typical shelter where animals are unfortunately, in crates and cages because they don't have space. Every animal is in a home. So I found Eugene online. We drove down to San Antonio, did a meet and greet. Uh, Now I got to adopt him. So I have a roommate now, which is great. He still has not paid rent yet, but we're going to talk about it. (laughs) It's been a little bit of a challenge. He's still adjusting to the new house, understandably. And I've gotten a couple noise complaints because he's kind of crying in his crate. But we're getting there. And he's my little buddy. In fact, he's sitting right next to me as I record this episode. So if you follow on Twitter, which admittedly, there aren't many or any posts yet, I'm going to be putting pictures of Eugene up there. So he'll be uh, kind of the new mascot for another round of thoughts, which is super, super exciting. So anyone who's out there adopting a pet or thinking about adopting a pet, reach out to me if you have any questions. I'd like to, you know, tell you my experiences if you have any worries or fears about making the jump, what it's like living in an apartment with a dog, kind of the real nitty gritty. What's it like waking up at 6 a.m. to go for a 30 minute walk? I can tell you how that that's that's going as well. But yeah, just reach out if you have any questions. I'd love to connect with other pet owners or just, you know, anything you know that we can have in common would be super cool. All right. So with that out of the way, the drink of choice this week is back to gin and tonic for a couple reasons. One is now that I have a dog, I am not running errands as frequently and my life is a little bit out of whack. So I haven't quite made it to the store to get anything new. I had big plans of creating a craft cocktail for one of these episodes. But, you know, it's been gin and tonic, chamomile tea and White Claw and... I don't know, (laughs) not not as glamorous as I had in mind when we started. But yeah, this week is gin and tonic. So take it or leave it. I have fresh limes, though, which is nice. So I have some fresh lime juice in there to kind of get me going. So, you know, make sure you have a drink if you're not driving. And let's kick back and get into it. So this week, I wanted to kind of do something different, partially because I was triggered a bit from Reddit, something that I've seen actually a couple months ago, and I just, it's been on my mind, and I thought it'd be a good time to discuss it. And it came from Reddit on, as I said, from September 27th, and it's from a subreddit called A Boring Dystopia, which I don't necessarily follow, but sometimes if you're scrolling Reddit, you see like all the popular things that have a bunch of upvotes. And this was a post that came through. And I wish, I wish, I wish at the time that I would have done a screen grab of the actual post, but I just wasn't thinking about it in context of this of this podcast. So I don't have it to show or to link. I went back to the post whenever I was doing this episode and they took down, it was an image and they took down the image. They kept the comments and everything. And I have a few comments that I'm going to share later, but they took down the actual post, which I was kind of kicking myself for. I wish I wish I would have done that. But anyway, so it's a post from this a boring dystopia subreddit. And 
it was right at the hype, September 27th, right at the hype of the vaping health crisis that was going on, where there were some people that were hospitalized and even some deaths, a couple dozen deaths, I think, from, you know, this water vapor based smoking through e-cigarettes or, you know, other common names that you've heard. And what this post had was basically a comparison of the number of deaths for a variety of substances. So at the top, it had deaths for vaping. It had deaths for alcohol-related instances, and then deaths for gun violence. All really hot-button issues at the time. And what was interesting is the scale of these um, and that it was trying to do a direct comparison. For instance, it showed that the number of vaping deaths was maybe around 25 or 30 this year. And then the alcohol deaths was in the thousands and gun related deaths was in the tens of thousands. So at that time, it ignited a huge response from Reddit because we're comparing all of these deaths, a like apples to apples. And these are real tragedies. In some ways, you can interpret it as, you know, all of these things need attention. But another way you can interpret it as, you know, vaping deaths are unfortunate, but there are other hot button issues that we need to focus on more. And the huge response from Reddit turned into like 39,000 upvotes and 86% of people that saw this post were upvoting it. And that's how it made it to the homepage. And that's how I saw it to begin with. And I thought this was super fascinating because the comments were super split. Everyone had a strong opinion about this, whether or not they were affected by a vaping death directly. And it made me really think, how should we feel about reinforcing some deaths and diminishing others? that are substance related. And I'll read, I copy and pasted some of the comments and I'm gonna read a few of them now. So one of them that struck me, alcohol helps kill 2.8 million people a year, but you're right, vaporized oil killing 19 people is much, much worse. Another one that was kind of off the wall, 24 deaths from ice. Yes, ice, frozen water. 24 deaths a year from ice. When is that going to get banned? So that one being a little more sarcastic about, you know, maybe vaping shouldn't be that regulated or that much of a concern. Then there's another one that I think struck me. Vapes, guns, and cops will never catch up with heart disease, which I think is is true. I think heart disease is still one of the most lethal diseases that we have. But even then, like, the post wasn't even about heart disease. <laughs> We're bringing in all of these things. It also wasn't about cops directly. I guess the gun violence, I could see that being direct, uh, related. But then that's getting into political motivations, too. And it's just kind of a can of worms that is really, really, really difficult to get our hands on and kind of be unified in our approach. I think deep down people want to feel safe, secure, and healthy, but then we don't know how to tackle all these different threads of activity because we can't control all of this. Some of this just feels out of our control. So it makes me think, and the thought and discussion for this week that I want to do is, you know, how do we rank these and other recreational substances against each other? And should we even be doing that? So thinking about this, really what we need is a common baseline. And this is true for, I guess, less crucial data analyses too. When you have too many variables and too many different types of data and you have different scales and and different, I guess, factors and features and whatever it is, it's really difficult to find a common baseline. And that common baseline is what we need to make any sort of sense out of any of these tragedies and then the substances that contribute to those tragedies. So a lot of the problems here that I can see, especially just coming from this post, are different substances 
different demographics are at stake, different political landscapes for each. And so in some ways, we either need to isolate these variables or we need to abstract them away. In data analysis, you might hear about standardization or normalization. That helps you know, reduce the scale of data from you know, something that could be from zero to 10, and another feature might be zero to a million, and to everything that can be ranked between zero and one. Basically, a common baseline that says the maximum value is one, the minimum value is zero. We're not dealing with millions versus tens versus negatives versus positives, right? And whenever you try to do any of that, granted, this example is not necessarily that cut and dry numerically, <laughs> but I guess conceptually we should be looking for how do we take these different avenues, these different viewpoints, and put them in a range of zero to one so that we can say that a 0.5 is a 0.5 no matter what your political views are, no matter what your demographic is, no matter which substance you're looking at, whether it grows from the ground or falls from the sky. And so I guess to start with that, I wanted to look at the drug scheduling system because that's the current way that the federal government tries to regulate this. And I found some really, really interesting insights from that. The drug scheduling system takes a lot of substances and ranks them on a, you know, a schedule of one to five based on two factors, the potential for abuse and the medical value of those substances. And this started from the Controlled Substances Act through the DEA. So the DEA Drug Enforcement Agency is the one that keeps the schedule up to date and is responsible for maintaining it, changing it, adding, subtracting, all that stuff. So the way that the schedules work is Schedule 1 drugs have no medical value and a high potential for abuse. And Schedules 2 through 5 substances all have some medical value and differ in ranking depending on their potential for abuse from high to low. So Schedule 5 is the most benign in some ways, according to the DEA's view, the most benign substances. And Schedule 1 is the ones that, whoa, we have to really, really, really restrict access to this. And this started at a time when people were scared that drugs would undo the moral fabric of America, mostly LSD under you know, Richard Nixon. And I think this is kind of a, an aside, but there's a really, really good documentary on Netflix called 13th, about the 13th Amendment. And it goes into some of this. And it, some people also think that this drug scheduling system is a way to racially police communities in a legal way, which that perhaps we can go into in a different episode. But all that to say that this drug scheduling system is not perfect and does have motivations. And I'll give you some examples. Let's look at some drugs that are scheduled on schedules one through five, just to see how the uh, DEA is ranking these. Okay, so let's start at the bottom before we work our way to schedule one. Let's start at schedule five. Uh, some examples of these are like Robitussin, Lyrica, Modafin. It seems like a lot of over-the-counter substances. Maybe you can make illicit things out of them, but they definitely have medical value. And I don't really think people are going to abuse Robitussin that much, especially because it tastes like trash. <laughs> but it does work. Anytime that I'm sick, I definitely take a Robitussin, like liquid dosage, and it helps me get over my sore throat, maybe like bronchitis or something, but man, it tastes awful. So hopefully people aren't trying to abuse that for their own good. Anyway, so that's Schedule 5. These are probably substances that you've seen in CVS, Walgreens. Maybe you need a prescription for but I think that looks more like Schedule 4 drugs. So Schedule 4 drugs are like Xanax, Valium, Ambien, those kind of things. Uh, seems like more diagnosable conditions need 
this type of treatment. Not too sure. I'm not a medical expert. Schedule three examples are like testosterone, anabolic steroids, performance enhancing things. That's schedule three. Schedule two is cocaine, meth, oxycotton, Adderall, Ritalin, Vicodin, heavy, heavy, heavy stuff. So still some medical benefits. And in fact, back in the day, when I say back in the day, like early 1900s, they used cocaine as a painkiller medically in hospitals before they knew that it would turn your brain to mush and make your teeth fall out. So yeah, there's, I guess you could say a little bit of medical benefit there. And then schedule one, and this is where I think whenever we think of recreational drugs, this is where I think most of our minds go. Marijuana, heroin, LSD, ecstasy, and magic mushrooms are all Schedule 1 drugs. And so what I think is interesting and what I think a lot of people online, based on my research for this episode, they find it really ludicrous that marijuana and heroin are both under the Schedule 1. Now, recently that has changed, right? The DEA has descheduled marijuana. But for a while, marijuana and heroin were on the same level. And that was due a lot to not seeing medical benefit and the potential for abuse. Only two factors, right? Now we know a lot more about marijuana. We have a lot of CBD-based products that are really good for joint pain. In fact, for my new dog, Eugene, I've considered getting CBD-based anxiety chews, like little gummies he can take to help him relax whenever I'm gone. Great for anxiety. There's no psychoactive properties. And it's coming from a marijuana-based product. We've been able to, to separate the THC from the CBD to make something that is really beneficial for a lot of people without it being abused or having you know ill effects on someone's motor skills or ability to reason. And so this is really kind of a, a, a crux of the scheduling system where people think that a lot can be improved here. I think a second thing to take away is there are two substances that I did not name in any of those examples, tobacco and alcohol. Neither of those substances are governed by this scheduling system. They have been explicitly excluded from this scheduling by requests from lobbyists and corporations over the years. Intentionally, tobacco and alcohol are not on the scheduled drug system, not because they're different types of substances, but because influences and parties have requested them to be excluded. So this means that the drug scheduling system has the potential to be out of date and inaccurate by the example marijuana being a schedule one drug for so long. And two, it's not completely altruistic because tobacco and alcohol are excluded exceptions to this rule. So it's not a watertight rule. And what this means is that there is some middle ground, some gray area that has no real solid regulations, scheduling, or understanding, and I think a lot of substances fall into this category, mainly tobacco, vaping, alcohol, and weed. They're not governed by the system as closely as they should, and so we come into these Reddit-type discussions where people are trying to make sense of deaths that occur without any common ground to stand on. So what do I think we should do? I think one approach, and I'd be interested to hear comments after this episode on what you guys think, because I don't really have firm data, and I like previous episodes, I didn't do a simulation on people smoking. I uh, don't know how to do that. So my approach is more theoretical this week, but it's to identify and score a common set of features for all recreational substances. And kind of my inspiration for this, two, two areas. One, food labels. 
you know, back in the day, 50s and 60s, how did we figure out healthy versus non-healthy food without food labels for carbs, fat, protein, you know, cholesterol, etc.? Now, also, I'm thinking prescriptions. Each prescription has clearly labeled amounts of the active ingredients in it, so you know exactly what you're putting in the body. So what I'm thinking is to have common, quote, food labels for all descheduled recreational substances. This is when I turn to the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, kind of to kind of help me get started. Because admittedly, again, I'm not an expert on food labeling, nutrition, or any of that. Um, I think all the fast food bags in my garbage are a testament to that. <laughs> but I looked at the FDA. They have their guides published publicly, and they have a lot of really good resources. I'm going to put a link on the website to the one that I used. I hope it's the one that's up to date. It's the most recent one I could find, and it looked pretty authoritative. It's a 130-page document on how companies have to make labels for food in order to sell them in the U.S. And the mission is for the Food and Drug Administration to be responsible for assuring that foods sold in the U.S. are safe, wholesome, and properly labeled. I think this is something that we can extend to some of these recreational substances. Maybe not the safe and wholesome part, because given the fact that we have recorded deaths, maybe it's just the properly labeled and understood. So maybe we change this from being safe, wholesome, and properly labeled to properly labeled and understood. Everyone understands what they're getting into if they elect to use one of these substances. So within this 130-page document from the FDA, I looked up the labeling for alcohol, and there is some, I have to admit there is some, but it mainly has to mimic the nutrition of the actual stuff inside, and they just have to give the ABV. So of the 2,860 docs that are recorded, I did a quick search, and only seven cover alcohol, and most of these are labeling for diluted wines and cider with less than 7% ABV, which is, you know, part of this is why if, if you've ever picked up a can of Bud Light or even sometimes a wine bottle will have this uh, if it's under the 7%, you'll see nutrition stuff like carbs and it'll look almost just like what you would find in any grocery store aisle. So like, you know, how they market some of the Miller light beers as, you know, what is it, the 64 calorie beers or something like that. That's from the FDA labeling. So it's given, in some ways, that's the alcohol companies even turning that into uh, marketing, right? The healthy beer. Um, but it's all about just like labeling this just like it was an apple or a frozen pizza, right? It's not really going into the short-term or long-term effects of using the substance and how it could affect your body. Similarly, I looked at the FDA labeling for tobacco, and this has a little bit, I guess, closer to what I would say a more wholesome approach or a more holistic approach. And they regulate the use of light, medium, and heavy in terms of packaging. So they at least do segment into a severity of use, would be a way to say. And this relies on a relatively new piece of legislation when compared to the Constitution, I guess. Mostly, this is mostly reliant on the Family Smoking Prevention and Tobacco Control Act passed in 2009. And what this does is it puts a lot of restrictions down on how tobacco can be marketed. As in, you can't market to youth, so you can't be putting tobacco stuff in schools. And the required warning labels, modified risk claims have to be supported by scientific evidence in that you have to put a warning label on and if you don't want to do that, you have to fund a study to say otherwise and have scientific results to prove otherwise. 
It requires a full disclosure of ingredients, which is, I guess, akin to a prescription in some ways. So this is a good move. And it preserves state, local, and tribal authority. I don't know an example of tribal authority, (laughs) but that's, you know, part of the act. Furthermore, it requires registration from companies into a, you know, public database so everyone knows who is in these, you know, legislation, or I guess under control of this legislation and who is not. So there's like a network of tobacco companies that, you know, everyone has to abide by. But this is, again, mostly about labeling, mostly about graphics and mostly about warnings. So I think it hits some of those notes that we need for this common baseline between among substances. But again, some of this doesn't translate to alcohol or even vaping in some ways, right? I mean, I guess in some ways it does with vaping because vaping is still tobacco. It's just, it's smokeless tobacco. So it's supposed to be better for you. Maybe one less ingredient, but like with alcohol, most of the ingredients are probably corn, (laughs) corn or wheat, and then yeast and then thyme and and I don't know, (laughs) flavors. Uh, Maybe some, this new age guava beer, whatever's happening in these craft breweries, which I actually like, but who knows what's going on, you know? So you look at, even if you do like the disclosure of ingredients across all of these substances, it's just going to look like a grocery list, a shopping list. So what do we really need? So we need features that go beyond what is in the product and more so how the product affects us. And I think it'd be two different scores, a long-term effects. So I guess you could call it a fatality score or a more marketable term which would be something like unit sales per death, rate of unit sales per death, deaths per capita, rate of death per capita, addiction rates, stuff like that would be a long-term effect. And then a short-term effect would be, if I use it now, how does it affect me? So speed of absorption, amount for critical absorption. So at which point, based on body weight or body mass index, does this affect you critically? Alcohol does this with the blood alcohol level. So we could, uh, I guess, make that more so for other substances or, I guess, expand that. Psychoactivity score, so like for marijuana, you know, how if it has THC, you start to hallucinate and think, you know, whatever you think whenever you're under the use. But, you know, there's some psychoactivity, I think, for tobacco. You do get a high from that or, you know, you, you're obviously not yourself when you drink either. And then also maybe the number of people affected per unit use. In some ways, this is kind of a stretch, but it's like, how many people do you affect whenever you're under that substance? You know, are you more likely to affect three people, four people, five people? Maybe it's just yourself. So like if it's something that just affects you, it's probably safer than something that could affect someone else. But that would be an interesting, you know, short-term effect to look at. So long-term effects and short-term effects, we need common baseline scores for both of those in order to move on. Okay, so looking at the long-term factors, I admittedly struggled because how do you really calculate the fatality or the impact long-term across populations, across demographics, across, you know, geography for any of these substances? And so I did some research and I took, I guess, inspiration from viruses and infections, contagious infections. And there's a concept in contagious infections called the R-naught. And the R naught is there to tell you how dangerous an infection is in terms of spreading and reproduction. And so the R naught value is a number, and you understand something about a disease based on its R naught value. So if an R naught is less than one, each infection causes less than one new infection. 
In this case, the disease will decline and eventually die out. This is something like a, a damping effect. So, you know, how if you push a door and it swings and it swings and it swings and it swings, but eventually it'll stop swinging, right? That would be like an R0 value less than one. So that means a disease that maybe we're not too worried about. If it equals one, then each existing infection causes one new infection. So it will stay alive and the disease is considered stable, but there won't be an outbreak or there won't be an epidemic. It's not going to get out of hand. And if the R0 value is more than one, each infection causes more than one new infection. And this is how we you know, kind of describe an outbreak or an epidemic. And I think an R0 of maybe 50,000 is how we get movies like World War Z and Train to Busan and those kind of things. <laughs> so, yeah, so it, I guess it's important to think about the R0 as taking a bunch of features and turning it into a score, which is what I think we should do in a similar way for these types of recreational substances. So the R0 value is calculated based off of three features the infectious period, the contact rate, and the mode of transmission. Um, the infectious period is basically how long you're contagious once you have the disease. The contact rate is if a person is infected and how likely are they to come into contact with many people. So this is a really interesting feature because the contact rate could be different based on who is infected. Someone in a big city has a higher contact rate than someone that's you know, in a small town. And the mode of transmission, so diseases that spread through the air, such as the flu or measles, have a higher feature for this. But some diseases that are transmitted through bodily fluids, such as Ebola or HIV, aren't as easy to catch or spread. But that doesn't mean that they're less dangerous. What it is is the combination and weighting of all of these features together that give the R0 value. And so I'll give you some examples of r naughts. So for hepatitis, it's 2. Ebola, it's two. HIV is four. Mumps is 10 and measles is 18. That's why it's so important to get the measles vaccine because measles has such a high R0 value. It's going to be such a huge epidemic if even one person gets measles. So I almost wonder if for some of these longer term effects, like you know how a disease epidemic is a long term effect, and this is to bring it back to substances and not go off the rails on just uh, diseases. Although if you want to watch a really cool movie about diseases, um, Contagion, it came out in 2011. I think it's directed by Steven Soderbergh. It's got Kate Winslet in it. She's awesome. She talks about eating Taco Bell, and I, which I think is really cool. Good for her. Uh, but anyway, it, that's a really cool movie for diseases. So get your disease fixed there. We're going to get back to controlled substances. Okay, perfect. So what I think is we could have like an r not for alcohol, an r not for marijuana, an r not for vaping and are not for smoke tobacco, uh, traditional tobacco. I think that'd be cool. So it'd be like the length of effect would be like the infectious period. The popularity, so unit sales per capita could be like the contact rate and the potency. So like the mode of transmission. So, you know, sometimes, you know, inhaling versus drinking might have a different potency or, you know, the concentration of alcohol versus, you know, the concentration of, of, of whatever the active ingredient is in tobacco. That might be interesting to, to think about in terms of like the mode of transmission 
for the R0. I think we can combine those together into some sort of long-term effect or a factor or a score to say that, you know, this type of alcohol has, you know, this beer has a R0 of eight, and then this marijuana has an R0 of four, and this has a this other new vaping product has an R0 of seven or whatever. And so that's kind of a long-term effect of how dangerous or how effective or altering a substance can be. And then I think for the short-term effects, because we kind of cover the long-term effects and the R0, the short-term effects, I would think it could be just as simple as looking at you as a person and how does a dose of that substance affect you as a person ranked one through 10 based on all, you know, of your 12 major organ systems. So psychoactive, cardiovascular, nervous, respiratory, digestive, reproductive, urinary, endocrine, immune, and lymphatic. So those are the 12 major systems that are in your body to keep you walking, running, jumping, going to concerts, living, right? That's what it is. I think if you take each of those substances that are currently unscheduled in this gray area, normalize them, and rank them on a scale of 1 to 10 for each of those systems, you could then kind of have a sliding scale to say, okay, I know the r not, so long-term effect, this substance is probably more dangerous than this one. And then you could say short-term effect, if I use this substance tonight, it's going to affect me in X number of ways. You'll have 12 different numbers to look at to see how it will affect you. Now, this all sounds well and good, right? But what rightful corporation is going to subject their products to this type of scrutiny in the name of, quote, a better society and, quote, better health, when these are for-profit companies that need to make a, quote, profit? (laughs) So I don't know. I kind of thought about that, and I like the ideas of this, but I'm kind of at a loss for how this would be implemented. My first thought was to do it based on, like, tax incentives. So, for instance, if you, you know, if, if we register all of these substances, not necessarily regulate them, but make at least make them do the R0, uh, do government sponsored testing for the R0 and for the 12 major, you know, body system testing, do it independently and just have that published somewhere for everyone to see. Do that through the government. So put taxpayer dollars towards that, but then make tax incentives for companies. If it's like a zero sum game, you can have different tobacco companies compete with alcohol companies compete with whoever else to get these tax breaks if they come up with products that have lower or not factors and have lower impacts on our body systems so it can still be a good craft product it can still be a beer it can still be a wine but perhaps it's safer and better for you and then we won't have as many of these reddit based posts of people not knowing what's going on and companies can actually make some money from this i don't know (laughs) All I know is that there's always going to be a push and pull between what companies want, which I think is part of the reason why alcohol and tobacco was excluded from the scheduling system to begin with. There was enough money behind them to say, hey, we're not going to join this party. I think we need to rethink the entire scheduling game. Like the DEA is capturing some substances, but not others. We don't know how to make sense of this. We just need something common. Maybe we need an independent nonprofit to make this work. Who knows? If you guys have any comments or theories on this, or if you think that I'm full of crap with this, that's also fine. Uh, Let me know. Uh, Reach out to me over email. I'd be happy to hear from you. I'm going to see what you guys think about this. I hope everyone at least has uh, a passion and an appreciation for this type of discussion, at least. I personally don't, 
you know, feel entirely comfortable doing this episode, partially because I have, you know, I like alcohol and part of this podcast is supposed to be, you know, feel like you're in a bar. I am in no way trying to advocate for or against any of these substances, merely just trying to say I've noticed, especially just through this Reddit post, that people are concerned about their health, about our society, and what we're putting in our bodies and what's in front of our faces. And so I'd like to just establish again this common ground. And that's really the the one quick shot that I have for you this week is just whenever you're looking at or you come into contact with some of these discussions about, oh, this is bad, but this is worse, but this is even worse. Try to distill away all of the differences and come down to a single nugget of truth that goes across all of the different realms of conversation, whether that's, you know, fatalities like we talked about here through Reddit, or maybe it's immigration numbers, or maybe it's something environmental. We need to establish a common ground to do an analysis. If we're not looking at apples to apples, then any type of takeaway is false. Any conclusion is false. Garbage in, garbage out. That's how analysis works if you don't set up your data correctly. And that's what my intent was for coming up with these two short-term and the short-term and long-term effects of putting those scores in for unscheduled substances is just to create some sort of common baseline. And maybe the baseline is not right, but at least we can agree that a baseline is needed and then we can refine the baseline going forward. If we don't establish that baseline, then all of these conversations are for naught. All right. Thanks for sticking with me this week. I know it was a longer episode than normal. Yeah. And I just have a couple of housekeeping items to update y'all on. The website has gone through some updates, mostly because I've gotten better at making a website in the last two weeks. So I've fixed some things, added some new things. And yeah, so if you go to the homepage of the website now, all of the links to Spotify, iTunes podcast, or Apple podcast, whatever they call it, Google Play Music, and the uh, Stitcher. All those buttons from the homepage now actually link to where you can listen directly. So if you have trouble finding, uh, if you have trouble in the past finding, oh, I like Spotify, but I didn't know where to find it on Spotify before, all those buttons should be working now. So you can go to the homepage and check that out. Secondly, the Twitter has been updated. So whenever I was setting it up, the initial handle that I advertised at another round of thoughts. It's too long for Twitter. So what it is now is AROT podcast. So at AROT podcast, if you go to the website, another round of thoughts.com and go to the bottom, you'll see a little Twitter button. It'll take you right there. So you can kind of see content that's going to be posted there. I haven't done a whole lot with that yet. I'm still honestly getting everything kind of set up. And I'm not great at social media, but I have friends that are helping me and encouraging me. So I'm going to figure out how to take new pictures and put those up. Um, so be looking for those, especially be looking for pictures of Eugene. He's excited to meet everybody. Right now he is passed out on the bed sleeping. Yeah. So that's kind of the vibe that I'm feeling too. I'm ready to take a nap. So with that, finish your drinks because the next round's on me. 